It's a good night to be talking, singing about consecration and trust. Because tonight, as we continue in our question, mini-series, answering the question, how to love the brethren, we come to the principle of need. Last week in our time together, we were speaking of the principle of divine design. We're going to Romans chapter 12. Understanding from Romans 12, the exhortations to the church that we would love one another, that we would invest in one another, that we would uh, rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep, that we would uh, even uh, love those, bless them that curse us, bless and curse not. Recognizing the interesting reality that those exhortations uh, to love your enemies and bless them that curse you are actually given within the context of... Paul teaching on how the church should interact one with another. Very interesting thought there. All of that pointing us to this idea that the love that we're supposed to have is the love that is exemplified in the principle there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that we understand that the essence of our interactions one with another is rooted in this idea that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. Dead people don't have rights. Save the rights which are conferred upon us by the one who is alive for us, Jesus Christ himself. Thus we live at his pleasure. We live according to his rules, his law. And the law of love in Christ is that we would indeed love one another. So we come to this fourth message in our mini-series about the principle of need. Some specific commands, now that we've handled that broader command to love one another and what that looks like from Romans chapter 12, some specific commands and instances of love. And the first of these commands, again, I call the principle of need. We've already come into contact with this principle in various messages, particularly that message a couple of weeks ago as we talked about the priority of our love Prioritizing the brethren from Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, as the highest priority of our love for those that are around us. There we thought through, even among the brethren, that the highest priority, according to James 1.27, is those who are the most vulnerable. So James 1.27 says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James tells us that pure religion is defined by these two expressions. Visiting the fathers and widows, being unspotted from the world. Now, religion is not the same as spirituality, right? Spirituality refers to our direct and personal relationship with God, so our connection to him, and as we are connected to God in Christ, we are abiding in Christ, thus walking in the Spirit, and thus bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and that is what it means to be spiritual. A person can be very, very religious without having any connection to the spiritual. And today it is the great fad to be spiritual but not religious. And yet there is a true connection between the two. Religion refers to those physical, material, temporal frameworks that we erect in our lives to direct us 
unto those things which are needful as expressions of our spirituality. Those things which are needful in order to keep us in the frame of mind, the relationship, so that we may remain spiritual. These will take the form of rituals, of traditions, of routines that exist to draw us into relationship and secure for us the regular habits which are so necessary as an outworking of our spiritual lives in order to keep the relationship between us and the Lord strong. And we focused in at that time when we were talking about James 1.27 upon the first aspect of pure religion, to visit the fathers, the fatherless and widows, excuse me, in their affliction. And we can certainly regard this subset of the widows and the fatherless specifically, that we would help those who are widows and orphans or widows and fatherless among us. But we can actually see in this a broader principle, right? In the times of James's writing, those who were fatherless and husbandless were left in an extremely vulnerable place because society had no broad mechanism within the laws of labor to accommodate working women and working children. There was certainly no, there, there may have been other social safety nets in place, but one of them was not that a widow could simply say, well, my husband is dead, so I guess I'm going to go get a job. It didn't work that way at that time. And so as James expresses the exor- the, the, this need to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, the particular um, focus of that command is that as a church, we would identify those among us who are most vulnerable and most in need and that we would go out of our way to meet the needs of those who are most vulnerable. Absolutely, in our time, the fatherless and widows might be among those, might not be among those, depending on circumstances. But more broadly, there is this principle at play, a direct necessity in the Christian church of advocating for those who cannot advocate for themselves, of helping those who are unable to help themselves. Now, this is, a very, this is very different from helping those who are unwilling to help themselves, and we have characteristically made that distinction as well. And this has created one of the great tensions throughout time with the idea both of social safety nets as well as church and church culture, parsing between assistance and enablement, between helping those who need help and indulging those who don't want to take responsibility for themselves. And these are the two things that I would like for us to consider in our time together this evening as we think through this idea of loving the brethren through the principle of need. The original question here was, Pastor, you you preach these messages on loving the brethren from 1 John, and that's all well and good. 1 John tells us explicitly that loving the brethren is this mark of the believer and that if we are not loving the brethren as we ought, then we are not showing love to God as we ought. This is a big deal. We want to follow this command. We want to make sure we're right with this command. How do we do it? What does it look like? So we've talked through that. And this week we talk about the principle of need. First, the general principle of need, whereby we are called to help those who ask it of us. And second, we need to talk about how we should handle the inevitable conflict that will arise in our hearts as we give to those in need, whereby we're concerned that people might take advantage of our generosity, abuse that which we give them, 
or use it to justify their laziness or even persist in their wickedness. And so we'll think through these together. In the beginning of our thoughts, draw us, as they regularly do, to the teachings of Jesus. And I've taken you several times within this little mini-series to the Sermon on the Mount, and we get to go there again this evening. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and we read this beginning in verse 38. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now, it's this final verse that most naturally fits into the context of our considerations this evening, that we each would have a mindset of determined yieldedness. We might use the word generosity in this case as well. That to whatever degree we are able to meet the need of another, we would be determined in our hearts that we would do so. So much so, as we see in the context of this command, that we would be willing to reflect this generosity and kindness even to those that we might consider unworthy or those who seek to take from us that which is our own. And the fundamental motivation for such a mindset is expressed as Jesus continues in the following verses, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. We talked about that in Romans 12 last week. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So Jesus speaks here of this idea, which he exhorted in the idea that that if a man would, would, would smite thee on one cheek, turn to him the other. If a man would take thy coat, give him thy cloak also. And as he speaks to this idea, he says this, if you are only kind to those who are kind to you, if you only love those who first love you, you're really not any different than anyone else in society. Humans are naturally tribal. And as a general rule, we live by that principle, whether we want to call that explicitly the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or whether we want to maybe up at one, one notch on the decency scale and simply say, well, I'm going to be kind to those that are kind to me. Well, yes, yes, that's natural and that's decent. If you're kind to me, I will be kind to you. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. That's kind of the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth idea. If you don't want me to treat you poorly, then don't treat me poorly. That's kind of how civilized society is supposed to work, right? You treat me right, I treat you right, we all get along, and that's all well and good. But if that's all you've got, then all you have is what standard human decency and civilized society compels us unto. Jesus compels us to something more. Divine love is a love which loves even my enemies, which gives my cloak to the man who's come after my coat, It's not fun when someone comes to take something that belongs to you. 
Yet Jesus says, don't just give it to him, but give him more. The kind of love that blesses those who would persecute me, which does good to those who will despitefully use me. And the reason why is actually that reason that we explored in 1 Corinthians 13 some weeks ago. Because in doing so, in showing love to the unlovely, in blessing those who hate me and curse me, I have the privilege of reflecting the character of my God, who makes the sun to rise upon the evil and on the good, who sends the rain upon those who obey him and those who scorn him. And let's think this through a little bit more. This doesn't inherently mean that God treats everyone equally, right? Just as we talked about in our message on priorities in our love, where we talked about Jesus who had his inner three and then he had his 12 and then we think of the 500 and such. Our love toward all men should be full and true, but our priorities in love rest upon those who are our brethren. So too, God shows love even to those who hate him. But the whole of scripture testifies that there are deeper blessings and deeper relationship to be found among those who keep God's commandments. So it is with us that when Jesus says, love your enemies, the idea here is not that these are men who we have made our enemies for we don't make enemies but rather these are men who have made themselves our enemies. They have, they, they have chosen to be our enemy. They see us as their enemy. They attack me. They hate me. They despise me. They persecute me. And just as those who do so to our God, it is our privilege to love them and to bless them and even to give to them. See, a man can only take something from me we talked last week about this idea, and I alluded to it at the beginning, that a dead man has no rights. If I am dead to self, if I'm alive to Christ, if I am buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, then I'm not going to be offended when somebody crosses my rights because I don't see myself as having those, right? My rights are those which are hid in Christ and in God. And in that same vein... In the vein of the idea, if a man will take thy coat, give him thy cloak also. A man can only take something from me if I'm determined to hold it, withhold it from him. He can only steal from me if I'm determined not to let him have something. If I live with an open hand, seeing all that I have is an extension of what I have been given anyway, then even if a man is determined to forcibly remove from me that which is in my possession, he can't steal it from me if I give it to him first. Can I put it that way? And if I have a mindset that says all that I have is what is an extension of all that God has given to me, then I can keep myself in the love of God even when people seek to wrong me. Because instead of looking at that person who just took something from me and saying, he just stole that from me, it is mine. I can say, you know what? If he wants it that much, he can have it. You say, well, that's not just. That's true, it's not just. And in a just society, that would be taken care of by someone. But that someone is not intended, biblically speaking, to be me. What a mindset. What a thought process. And that undergirds our principle of need. Now, I'm giving you the hard principle first because then we're going to work to the easy stuff, which is or what ought to be easier, which is 
loving one, doing this one to another, loving the brethren. It ought to be easy because I shouldn't have someone in the church coming up and taking the things that belong to me. But if that is my heart, if that is the foundation of my thinking, if the things that I have are things that I see as borrowed or given to me by a generous God, and by the way, if he gave it to you once, he can give it to you again. Can he not? then it fundamentally changes the way I think about things. It fundamentally changes my perspective on the things that are mine. Now, this is hard for Americans. We're kind of private property people. This is what we do. It's what we're founded on. We fought a war over it. Fought a couple wars over it. But there is a principle here that we can get a hold of. Not have I gotten, but what I've received. And what is more important that I keep that thing that I say belongs to me or that I keep my heart in the love of God. And if having a determination in my mind to keep that which belongs to me causes me to have a heart of resentment or anger or bitterness or vengeance against someone who would seek to take it from me, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the raw end of the deal if I stake the claim on what is mine at the expense of my heart and my soul. That's the principle. That's the idea. Do you understand the mindset? The determined nature of holding the things that I have so loosely combined with the joyful opportunity to be in my life a reflection of the character of my God which is in heaven, which works in me a kind of generosity rooted in the conviction that nothing which I have is my own but only borrowed from the Lord. And I am so, and I'm not so attached to anything which is borrowed from the Lord, that I would be willing to withhold it from another in need. That's, that, that's where this principle is going. So that's not talking about someone stealing stuff from me, right? That is talking about me seeing someone in need and saying, it might be a sacrifice. It might mean I have to give up a little something, but I have what I need. They don't have what they need. And there's an opportunity here for me to yield that which I have in order to meet the need of another And since all that I have is held loosely, since all that I have is given to me from the generosity of a good God anyway, what is withholding me from meeting that need? And much more than that, I would rather even allow an evil man to take my coat and my cloak than allow his evil actions instead to strip from me the relationship that I have with my father by plunging me into anger or violence or vengeance. Far better for me to give it to him than to mar my soul. And my opportunity to reflect the part of God's character through these actions. So that even at my own earthly expense, I will be determined to maintain my spiritual integrity. If I might just per chance be able to be like my Father in heaven. Hence the reason why it was very appropriate, the songs we sang there. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Take my life and let it be consecrated. That as I trust in the Lord and as I'm consecrated unto Him, I recognize that the Lord will meet my needs. And so I hold the things that I have loosely because indeed I have a Father in heaven who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He will take care of me as He lays upon my heart to help others. Okay, so that's the general principle. 
Now let's work it down to loving the brethren. And for this, we go to James chapter 2. We, we, we read in James 2, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, I've covered this several times over the last few months, but I'm going to reiterate it again, because, again, this is one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. And it's one that so many people get confused with. And you've perhaps heard me say this before, but it's worth you hearing again, because the more we hear it, the easier, the better it will be to cement this idea in our minds. In James chapter 2, the apostle is having a discussion about the relationship between faith and works. And the essence of his statement is that faith is justified by works. I am not justified by works. My soul, my spirit, my, 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 myself, I am justified by faith before God. But the faith that I have in any given circumstance will be justified or proved by the works that it produces. Anyone can say that they have faith in something which God has said. We know that we have that faith, however, when what we know becomes what we believe and so affects what we do when it produces the work that is consistent with that faith so that I might know something to be true of the commands of God, but I cannot say that I actually have faith in some command of God if the way I am living is not in agreement with what I say I believe. And many have used James 2 to insist that if a person isn't living up to some biblical command, it's often some rather arbitrary biblical command, this means they aren't a Christian. But every exercise of faith comes with a natural and expected expression of works. I cannot say that a person doesn't have faith that God will supply their needs because they're struggling with lying. That's not consistent. The sin of lying has nothing to do with the promise that God will supply all of our needs. I cannot say that a person doesn't have faith in God's command to love his wife because he struggles to submit to the government. Because the sin of rebellion against his government has nothing to do with the promise of God connected with loving his wife. Every act of faith comes with a natural work that proves whether or not that faith exists in our hearts. If I believe that God will supply my needs, the natural work that this faith will produce is that I won't fret over my provisions. If I believe that, the God who, that there's a God in heaven who loves and rewards truth above all, the natural work that this faith will produce in my heart is that I will not lie. If I believe that God hates rebellion and has ordained earthly authorities, the natural work that this faith will produce is that I will honor the God-ordained earthly authorities in my life. And if I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, apart from any worth or merit of my own, then the natural work that this faith will produce in my life is that I will not be trying to earn my way to heaven. This is the natural work that that faith produces. And this is the work that I should look for in my life to prove that I have that faith. It would be silly for me to gauge whether or not I believe Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins by whether or not I have full faith in God's provision. That's another layer of faith. The two are different promises, each producing a different work, a different result as I put my faith in them. 
It would be silly for me to gauge whether or not I believe Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins by whether or not I have complete control over my anger because these are two different principles producing two different works as I exercise faith in them individually. And I hope that that is clear enough. Now, very early in James's discussion on this, and James goes on to talk about that, uh, that, that idea of faith and works, but very early on in this discussion, in verses 15 through 17 of James 2, James gives an example. And this example is what we are going to look at as we talk about the principle of need. James continues, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. As an example of this principle, as James is laying the foundation for what he's about to teach, he speaks to a scenario where a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. Notice the familial terms used here, brother and sister, which could certainly mean blood family, but which is far more likely and commonly used in the New Testament to speak of fellow believers in Jesus Christ, those who are part of the church. That is what we would regard here. That is what we would believe here is that as James is giving this example of a brother or sister in need, he's talking about a fellow believer, one who is a, a, a part of the church with you. And this brother or sister is lacking in the basic necessities of living, food and clothing. And the church or an individual in the church sees this person who is lacking the basic needs and they say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Now this is, in a sense, what we might consider a generalized departure blessing. We say, have a great week, the Lord bless you. That's a a blessing as we depart. In Hebrew, uh, the the idea was probably best understood in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That idea of a, a, a blessing for your departure. And here we have what might be a New Testament version of this. Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. And it's a wonderful sentiment, is it not? It reflects a confidence that as we go our ways, the Lord is going to take care of you. He is going to warm you and fill you. That is clothing and food, right? Be warmed. That's the idea of having the clothes to be warm and be filled. That is having food in your belly. So the, the blessing here is depart in peace with peace in your heart, not with anxiety, not with fear, not with sadness. Be warmed and filled. Let the Lord take care of your needs. It's a tremendous sentiment. But what good is this statement of faith if it is not backed by a determination that I'm going to be a part of that solution to that need? That if my brother or sister comes into the church and they do not have those things which are necessary and I have all that I need and I send them away with the blessing hoping that they will be warmed and filled notwithstanding I do not help them to meet the need that they have, where's my faith? My faith is misplaced. It is misguided. It is in word only. I say I believe God will do this, but I do not have in me the faith to actually say, and God will use me to meet this need. How is it that I can express faith in God's provision when I am unwilling to exercise that faith by being the source of that provision? Why has God blessed us if not so that we can meet the needs of others? 
And why should we expect God to bless us if we refuse to do so? So in the context of James' discussion in James 2, he is saying that the faith of the one who would say he believes in God's provision but does not acknowledge his role is dead, being alone. It is non-existent. It is in name, but it is not in substance. And of course, this same lesson of faith is important for us today. But far more relevant to our topic is the actual command. What does it mean to love the brethren? It means to make sure that we're meeting each other's needs. You want to put meat on those bones of loving the brethren? We've talked generally. We've talked about selfless loving. We've talked about weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice, connecting ourselves to those who are in the body, loving, forgiving, being patient with those All of these are very good. Someone uh, gets on your nerves a little bit. You have a personality conflict. There's grading. There's there's, uh, difficulties. There's interpersonal relationship problems. And you show grace and temperance and patience and all of these things with those who are around you. And that is a real way that you can love the brethren. That that, That you meet people where they are emotionally and you help them pass the difficulties in their lives. This is a real way to love the brethren. But if you want to put some teeth to it, let's talk about making sure that our needs are met. Making sure that our brethren's needs are met. And truly, this is the charge of God's people. God forbid that anyone in this church should be forced to run to some other social safety net to have their needs met when there is a body of believers right here who exist to do exactly that, to meet each other's needs. Now, that being said, it goes without saying that there are Very few in this, the wealthiest society the earth has ever known, who lack the basic necessities of shelter, of food, and of clothing. Yes, we see in every major city huge encampments of homeless people, the vast majority of which are there because they're drug addicts, having squandered whatever help they may have received to feed their habit. And our compassion goes out to them Not for their lack of resources, but primarily for the degree to which they have been ensnared by the lies of the devil and the substances which they've put into their bodies. But even if the principle does not find as much of an outworking in our society, I mean, there's still many, many people in need. They are still everywhere. Those needs, however, might not necessarily be most obvious in the needs of the body, but in the needs of the spirit, in the needs of the soul. So with a society as wealthy as ours, with the ever-changing needs of the modern era, we may find ourselves in a place where we say, well, outside of these walls, or even maybe inside of these walls, it's not as if the people that come here every week, there's a need that must be met financially, or at least we're not hearing about them. Maybe there are. But in order that we might embody our Savior's commands regarding the principle of need, Give to him that asketh of thee, from him, uh, from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. We extend the grace of God for functional living, perhaps to other things in life, that our generosity in the name of God extends unto among all men, but especially unto them that are in the household of faith. Maybe we extend this to our time. Maybe the thing that we don't need as much in America is money, but maybe the people in this room need your time. Maybe the people in this room need your ears to hear, to listen, to care, 
Maybe there are other ways that our generosity is more needed than money. But let us not then ignore or overlook the fact that needs do come around. And let us be willing to have that heart of readiness to meet those needs. One more thing to consider before we conclude this evening. We live in a fundamentally entitled society. Indeed, a large portion of the generation which has entered the workforce in the past 10 years feel as though society owes them. Society owes them money. Society owes them opportunities. Society owes them luxuries. Millions have never entered the workforce again after COVID. And a report just came out recently that in, in three states in the union, a person who does not work can receive over $100,000 a year in what they call benefits. To this end, there's very little incentive in our country right now and in our culture to work because people can live very comfortably on what we call the welfare state. And this has been one of the most devastating things to the church of God. We talk about Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson and his great society. And when people talk about the effect of the great society upon the church, they often focus in on the fact that it was in the, great, the times of the great society that uh, the, the idea of the 501c3 um, uh, the nonprofit organization was established and churches were allowed to have um, the, this, this exemption and that that caused churches to be a wing or an entity of the government and to not be able to speak on matters of politics and such. And most of that is actually fabrication. It's not true. There's only been one litigation since the Great Society on anything like a church involved in politics and they were involved to a degree that was um, truly uh, not, not acceptable. Um, but... So, so, so that's primarily a myth, but, 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 but Lyndon Johnson's Great Society did indeed affect the church in a dramatic way that most people don't think about. And what the dramatic effect of the church was, was that the welfare state began. And what the welfare state did is it put the government in direct competition with the church as it related to meeting people's needs. And church cannot compete with the government when it relates to handing out money. No one can compete with the government when it relates to handing out money. And not only can the church not compete in fundamental resources, but the church has always had this thing where with the money came accountability. With the money came connection. With the money came the exhortation to help someone pull them out of their problems and bring them into self-sufficiency. And the government asks for none of that. So that if somebody knocks on our door and comes in and asks for something and we say, we would be happy to give you that. Let's get your name. Let's get your number. We're going to have someone come to your house and we're going to provide these things that you need. Plus, we're going to give you help on how to get past that. They say, wow, that's a lot of work. I can just go to Health and Human Services. Thanks. And what this has done is this has stripped from the church two things. First, it has stripped from us the opportunity to give as we have historically given. But second, it is also stripped from us the compulsion, the necessity of giving. We don't feel the urgency because there's plenty of other safety nets that people can go to if we don't happen to get around to giving to someone. To this end, those who come to us for help must do so only in faith. 
determined that God is not ordained to be cared for by the government and that this nanny state philosophy is immoral and will contribute to the worsening, not the betterment of those who engage with it fully. And there's very few that do that. And so we find this difficulty as it relates to meeting people's needs. A second predicament is that there's a fundamental distrust that wells up in our hearts in this day and age for those who express needs, isn't there? We say, well, I mean, to be quite honest, usually if a person wants a job, there's a job to be had. And to this end, we have a measure of contempt for the beggar. Or we assume that the reason they're needy is because they cannot get others to help them and that most likely because they intend to use the money for something unhealthy or lacking in social virtue. We say, wow, they must be really desperate if they're coming to us. That must mean that even the government's rejected them. And it creates a cynicism in our hearts. And these are difficult needles to thread, if you will. Because none of us wants to enable vice. None of us wants to be taken advantage of. And so I give you a few exhortations on this as we, as we come near to the close of our message. Matthew chapter 5 teaches us that the default disposition of the believer ought to be that we would live with our hand open to those in need. That the resources God has given us exist for two primary purposes. To live, both for today and as we combine this with the exhortations of Proverbs, that we would save that which is necessary for us to be able to... Uh, provide for the unknowns in life. The Bible says the good man gives an inheritance to his children. So to save, to live, and secondly, to give to the needs of others. Now the scriptures do not scorn luxury. The scriptures do not scorn plenty, but they certainly don't promise or otherwise praise the condition of luxury either. I spoke about it in Sunday school this morning. Let's formalize it. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. The writer says, two things have I required of thee. This is the prayer to the Lord. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. The wisdom writer prays that he would be neither full nor empty. For in having plenty and thus being able to provide for his own happiness at will, he feared that it would bring him to a state where he would deny the Lord, that he would not need to trust in God and so rather simply trust in himself to provide for all of his needs. And indeed, we find it to be so that Jesus does give warnings about wealth. Matthew 19.24, Jesus saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as that that account continues, the disciples say, wow, then who, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I'm not saying that a rich man can't get into heaven. That's not the point. The point is that when a man is able to find in himself everything that he perceives he needs, he has a much more difficult time seeing the need to humble himself before God. Paul would say a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, as it relates to not wealth, but he says, not many uh, wise men, not many mighty men, not many noble men are called. Why? Because the wise and the mighty and the noble have other things to commend themselves that will uh, disincentivize them from trusting in the Lord. 
The wisdom writer then goes the other way as well. He says, Lord, help me as well. Grant that I would not be poor. And so be forced to steal. And so shame your name as a follower and truster of God. Instead, the wisdom writer prays that God would feed him with the food that is convenient for him, that he would have enough. Enough that he would still be compelled to trust God, but also be able to rejoice in God's provision. And so we find the gentle, gentle sen- general sentiment in Scripture that enough is enough. Money is not evil. But in much the same way, a sense of justice and appreciation for the principle of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, that if a man does not work, neither should he eat. It is a good and a right thing that a person should work. It is a good and right thing that a person should provide for themselves, that they should study to be quiet, that they should work for their daily bread. These are the things that are right We do not want to become enablers of laziness or of entitlement or of addiction. And no one wants to give in good faith only to find that his generosity and trust has been taken advantage of. And yet for all of this, the principles of the word of God and the character of God commends us to such an exhortation of generosity and open-handedness that if we were to run the risk one way or the other of getting it wrong, either by giving to those who are unworthy or by withholding from those who are in true need, God help us that we would err on the side of generosity. We do our due diligence to make sure that the person in need is a person in need, to make sure as best we can that we are not enabling that which God would not be pleased with. But if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of generosity and leave the rest to God. What others do with what we give them is their business, but it is imperative that our hearts and our hands be open. And if we have this philosophy, in the church it ought to be easy. Now, now in the church it doesn't mean we, we, we don't get those sorts of people where you wonder, am I enabling or am I helping? But in the church, it ought to be quite a bit easier than as we look outside these walls. That we would, if if nowhere else, God help us, that we would, within this body, have such a determined hand of openness one toward another that every single person who has connected themselves to this church in, in a real way would know that if they truly had a need, it would be met. And that they would meet the needs of others today in confidence knowing that their need will be met when they have one tomorrow. And in that kind of back and forth love, loving one another, we hold that testimony of Christ. And as we draw this principle back into this circle of priority, into the brethren, it truly ought to be the easiest thing in the world. And God help us that we would be open and generous, seeing what we have as given by God. And as we have been given so freely, may we also give freely with full confidence that the God who has commanded us to be generous will reward us for our obedience, will take care of us. And may we have that confidence within this church that as I pour myself into you, meeting your needs in your day of need, that you will pour yourself into me in my day of need as well. And as we live this way, we thrive. You loving me, me loving you, and all because we love the God who has created us and sustained us. 
And that's what loving the brethren looks like. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.